We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. IB Nation, welcome back to another edition of the Irish Breakdown Podcast. It's Tuesday, and today kicks off a little bit of our new schedule that we're going to be having at Irish Breakdown, and it's going to include this week, it's going to be on the big show, on the the afternoon show, and then next week, you're also going to see it on the IB Nation Sports Talk, and here's a little bit of a rundown on what the new schedule is, and then we'll dive into today's topics, because I'm really excited to talk about today's topics. Number one is... The, the shows are going to be a little bit different now. On Monday, Wednesday, Friday, it's going to be Ryan and I, or excuse me, Monday, Wednesday, it's going to be Ryan and I doing our Monday mailbag. And then Wednesday, we'll do sort of like a midweek rundown. It'll be kind of the two of us going to dive into a lot of different topics. Sometimes it, you know, there may be a topic that's big enough that we focus just on that one topic. And then Friday will be the recruiting hour with Ryan and Sean. Tuesday and Thursday are going to be solo shows with me. It'll be kind of similar to the midweek rundown formats uh, on certain days. And then other days I'm going to do, you know, just break down one position. So on this Thursday, for example, I'm going to dive into a defensive overview. Next week I'll talk about kind of position overviews unless there's like a, you know, like a topic that's really hot that we need to dive into that day. And then I may kind of do a little bit of both. And then on Tuesday nights at the beginning of the Ivy Nation Sports Talk Show every Tuesday, we're going to have a recruiting segment. So Ryan is going to go on with Sean Styers and on Tuesday nights do a recruiting segment. So just we're just trying to mix things up and keep things fresh, just uh, making sure that we're always staying on top of, of just growing and, and providing you know, the, the content that you all come to expect, but just maybe in some different ways and some different avenues. So I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a lot of fun, and we're going to get rocking and rolling. And today – Boy, there's some I'm really excited about the at least the first two of the three topics. Last three is just kind of, you know, just sharing some talking, some recruiting with you guys and going over that type of stuff. But the first two topics today are one is about an article I already wrote. And the second one is an article that I started to work on. But I was like, you know what? Like, I think this would be a great podcast discussion. And topic number one is going to be talking about Marcus Freeman in the year three discussion at Notre Dame. And, and what expectations should be and why year three is important. We always hear like, oh, it's year three, it's year three, it's year three. Why is it important? And it's not just because, well, other coaches have won titles. It goes deeper than that. 
it's kind of the why. And I'll dive into that. Second topic today is going to go into a, a, a breakdown of the just the Notre Dame defense. And even as Notre Dame fans, I don't know that we really appreciate how good this defense was this season compared to past seasons. And then also what's what it's on the verge of becoming if the coaching staff can take those next steps as a program, you know, from a from a execution standpoint, development standpoint, all those type of things. Because when I crunched the numbers, I, I started I was talking with Sean Davis yesterday. I started the conversation or I started the research. I just was curious about something. So I started diving into pro football focus numbers and started looking at numbers and, and you know, cause you kind of get a feeling on something, right? And you're like, well, I wonder if my gut feeling is supported by the data. And so I did a dive into that. And I think you guys are going to enjoy that conversation. And then the third part is all, you know, the rankings are all coming out. Rivals did their final uh, rankings. Two, four, seven did their final rankings. And then all three came out with their final rankings. And so today I'm going to give you guys just kind of go over, you know, probably only for you know, 15, 20 minutes, just go over my final rankings for the 2024 class. And it'll be fun. And then I do have a few questions uh, starred for a mailbag at the end. I don't know if we'll do a full mailbag, as I've explained to you all before, when it's just me. It can be a bit of a challenge to monitor the chat and star questions and do all that when uh, I'm already doing a solo show. So I do have some star that came in before the show started and right at the beginning. If you do super chats, obviously those go there automatically. I don't have to worry about starring them. You can always give those. And so we'll uh, we'll get rocking and rolling here. And I'm uh, excited for today's show. And I hope you guys are too. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So topic number one is, is one that I've I've wanted to dive into for a number of years and it's more applicable now. And I'm glad that I did because it's more applicable now. And it was always like one of those things where when I first started covering the team, this is back in 2010. I remember after the 2011 season, people started talking about, you know, how important year three was for Brian Kelly. And, and I didn't 
I remember hearing this about like Charlie Weiss and I remember hearing it about Ty Willingham and Bob Davey, but I never under, I understood it like, okay, yeah, all these other coaches have won titles, but I never put a lot of thought into, you know, why it matters. Like it's, it's, it's more of like a, I don't know, like a tradition, the great coaches win in year three, you know, but as I dive into, you know, I cover the team longer and you, you dive into different aspects, you start evaluating the program and, and where it's going. And, and obviously Brian Kelly was way past year three by the time I came back on the beat in 2015 or 2014, and you start thinking about like, you know, why is this year three thing matter so much? And is it, is it, you know, is it, is it too much? Is it discussed too much? Is put, is too much put on it? And after a while, I kind of started thinking like, you know, may, maybe there is. And then you really think about it and you start thinking about, you know, why does year three matter and what impact does it have on Notre Dame? What does it say about a coach? I mean, so if a coach doesn't show big growth in year three, does that mean it can never win? That's not what it means. You know, as we saw with Jim Harbaugh, people asking us the other day, you know, look, if it takes Marcus Freeman eight years to win a title, what does that mean? And, and so I'm going to dive into to, to why I think it matters as I've been able to kind of do some of the research on this and and really think through it and just philosophically and and my opinion of why it matters and what it means and and uh, and what we're going to learn about Marcus Freeman this season. So to kind of put the conclusion at the very beginning. Year three is incredibly important for Marcus Freeman. And there are practical 2024 reasons why that is. And there's also some big picture evaluating the program reasons as to why that is. And and I'm going to get into those today. So let's do a little bit of a history lesson. And I'm going to do my best to, to, you know, channel my inner loose emoji. And it's not even come close, but that's the spirit behind it. And so what I did was, is I went back and obviously Newt Rockney was a, was the one that kind of set the standard at Notre Dame. And so, okay, what happened post Newt Rockney for Notre Dame and, and how did coaches do? And we dive into this year, year three type of thing. And so here's some of the data that I came up with. So obviously Newt Rockney's tenure ended tragically after the 1930 season when he passed away in an air, airplane accident. And Notre Dame since that time has hired 16 full-time coaches. So like meaning guys that were, not interims. We're not just kind of stepping in for, you know, for people for a period of time. It's like Kent Bears not on there. I did include George O'Leary. And, you know, there was obviously some coaches that were hired twice. Hugh DeVore was hired twice. And so I dive in a little bit of that. But of those 16 full-time coaches that were hired post Newt Rockney's tenure, only six of those coaches finished with a 700 win percentage of those coaches that coached more than a year. George McKeever coached one year at Notre Dame, had an 800-win percentage. It was considered a disappointment. He was then, I believe, fired after that one season and perhaps left on his own, but he was only here for one season. So 16 coaches, only six of them, were finished with a 700-win percentage or higher. Of those six coaches, four won national titles. Another had these – are, these are in um, – uh, this is, is year three. Four of them won national titles in year three. Another one had a runner-up season in year three. And then the sixth was, and that would be Elmer. So the four were obviously Frank Leahy, Air Parsegian, uh, Dan Devine, and Lou Holtz. Those were four of the six. So those four all won titles. The, the three, the other two, one of them was Brian Kelly, who went 12-0 and played for the, the BCS National Championship. Never won a national title, but obviously had Notre Dame in the post, on the championship stage three times. 
whatever your feelings are of Brian Kelly and what the program should have been and what it could have been and all that, if you just look at what it was, Brian Kelly was at Notre Dame for was it 12 seasons. And in three of those 12 seasons had Notre Dame on the stage to play for national championship. That's something that all his Charlie Weiss, Bob Davey, and Ty Willingham didn't do. And, and so that there obviously Brian Kelly has to be considered a successful coach. We, uh, it's a whole different conversation to talk about what could have been or should have been, but you can't take away from it. Now, Elmer Layden didn't is the sixth one. He did not, he was not on a championship like any plane in year three. He did, however, in, in during his tenure, and I believe it was his fifth season, that he did have Notre Dame on the verge of a championship. So in that season, Notre Dame was ranked number one. They had just beaten number 12 Minnesota and number 16 Northwestern in back-to-back games earlier in the season. They had beaten number 13 Carnegie Tech. They ranked number one. And they went on the road and played number eight USC and lost. If they'd have won that game, Notre Dame's probably the national championship. So of the six coaches that finished with a 700 record or better, they the 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 four of them won titles, two of them were on the verge of one game away from being a title and had successful careers. Elmer Layden is not someone who's talked about as much as a coach as he is as being a player, obviously at Notre Dame. But when you look at his career, he finished with a 47, 13, and three record in his tenure at Notre Dame as the head football coach. So he had over a 700 career win percentage as well. But here's where it got interesting for me. There was really no middle ground. There was those six coaches that were pretty pretty successful and, and all but Layden showed growth in year three. But with Layden, the program had that one year, but they were never able to really take any kind of jump. When you look at the other coaches, the other 10 coaches, one of them obviously got fired before ever coached a game, but then the other nine, those coaches, the highest win percentage of all those coaches was 583. And, and or actually, no, uh, Terry Brennan, I think, is the only one that had a win percentage higher than 583. So there's this big gap between the two. And what we saw was is in, in year three, we started to see the growth. And this is what it comes down to. In year three, you enter a period of time where this is the, the, the th- this is where Notre Dame is entering now. Number one, a lot of the DNA of the program that you had before is starting to go. And it's now becoming your program it's it's your staff it's your culture the majority of the players on this Notre Dame team in 2024 for example and this is true of past teams when you enter year three the majority of your team has either only was only been coached or recruited by you or only been coached by you so there are some guys that were recruited by Brian Kelly that never actually played for Brian Kelly that have are have only been coached by Marcus Freeman there are, the other chunk of the team is the players that were recruited and maybe played for a season or two under the previous coach, but now they've played in more seasons under you than they have anyone else, the exception being if there are any sixth-year seniors on this team. And I'd have to think through if they're – like Howard Cross is one of the exceptions. Howard Cross played three years under Brian Kelly. He's now going into year three under Marcus Freeman. But the vast majority of your team – has only played for you or has primarily played for you. Why does that matter? And and why is year three the year for that? Because now, if if you're successful, 
you shouldn't be chalking it up to the previous coach. This is not his team anymore. It's not his DNA. And people say, well, you know, if Marcus Freeman wins in year one or year two, how much credit does Brian Kelly get? And you say some, certainly he would deserve some. Now it's it's none. It's, this is your team. There's a flip side to that coin, right? There's another side to that coin. And that is the excuses that you could use to justify why you haven't been as good because of what you inherited are also gone. So I think there were some cultural things that Marcus Freeman had overcome from when Brian Kelly was here. There were some recruiting deficiencies that happened under Brian Kelly's tenure that left the roster not as good as it needed to be at certain very important positions. There were coaches that you kind of inherited that were here before that are now gone. All the things that you kind of say, hey, look, these are the reasons why you couldn't win under the previous staff, they're all gone. So you get all the credit, but you definitely get more of the blame now. You know, the last couple of years we've talked about how, well, you know, the team wasn't as good because of, you know, safety recruiting issues under Brian Kelly and, 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 you know, or, or cornerback or wide receiver or whatever the case may be. And, and you look at it and say, boy, he, uh, boy, he just left them not in a great spot at certain spots, quarterback. But you look at it and say, that's over with now. Right, You have the portal. You've been able to recruit your own players. You're going to have three quarterbacks on the roster that have only ever been coached by you and your staff. You're going to have a a, a transfer quarterback coming in. So you're at a point now in year three where the excuses are gone and you really start to see who that coach is. And that's what Marcus Freeman is entering into. And I'm going to show you because you get exposed one way or the other. And that's why I think this is now my opinion. This that data, the data shows something, and this is my interpretation of the data. When you look at the year three success, it was very indicative of okay, now it's your team. What is it going to be? And that's a really, to me, a really fascinating aspect to this conversation because you learn so much. And when you go back and look at at the coaches over the over the tenure, you start to see like that third year. Why did those coaches win titles? It's because then it became their team. The culture of the previous coach had been worked out. Sometimes it was good. Sometimes it was just continuing to to, to have success. But a lot of it was like, hey, this coach failed. I'm being brought in to fix things. Now, that's not true for every coach, right? Dan Devine is the exception, in my opinion, to that. Because, you know, he took over a situation where he was, I mean, they were a pretty good football team when Dan Devine took over and his job was to keep it rolling. And he was able to do that for a period of time. But when you look at like Notre Dame, for example, all the other coaches that, that came in post Rockney that won a title in year three, with the exception of Devine, they were all replacing something that was not as successful. And, and uh, you could, you could go to Frank Leahy and he inherited a good situation, but Elmer Layden wasn't what the, the Notre Dame program wasn't as dominant under Elmer Layden as it was, under other coaches. So there's, there's, and then obviously, you know, Lou Holtz inherited Dan Devine and then Eric Parsegian, I believe replaced uh, Joe Kaharik, right? No, he could replace Hugh DeVore, one year of Hugh DeVore, and then four years of Joe Kaharik, which was not very successful. So those are, those are different aspects of this. But when you look at it, as those coaches entered into year three, the best coaches prove themselves that they were the best coaches. The other coaches, it's not that, not having success in year three kind of created issues for them. It's just, it exposed them for who they are. So let's look at, at this Frank, Frank Leahy went 15, two and three in his first two seasons. 
In year three, they won a national championship, and it was the first of four for Frank Leahy, who is, is the record holder. Eric Parsegian went 16-3-1 in his first two seasons. The next in year three, 1966, the Notre Dame goes undefeated with one tie, wins a national championship. Coach Parsegian retires. He's replaced by Dan Devine, who only went 17-6 and six his first two seasons. But in year three, Notre Dame, I believe, lost – the first game of the year that year. Let me go look that up. I believe in 77, they lost the first game of the year. I think it was the Ole Miss. Let me go look at that season. Uh, first or second, second game of the year to Ole Miss. They went, they played them uh, on the road, lost that game, fell to number 11, and then went on a run, beat number five USC by 30. That jumped them from 11 to five. Then went on the road and beat number 15 Clemson. And then Notre Dame dropped the six blew out Air Force in Miami. They went into the Cotton Bowl ranked fifth. They played number one, Texas, blew out Texas 38-10, to 10, and then vaulted into number one, won a national championship. And then Dan Devine showed that he was a good football coach, but he wasn't a, a obviously an elite football coach at Notre Dame, but he did have success at Notre Dame. And in his, his tenure went 53-16-1, and, and in six seasons had three top 10 finishes and another number 12 finish for the Irish. In, during his tenure. Then, obviously, uh, Lou Holt steps in and re- is replacing Jerry Faust. And Notre Dame goes just 13-10 and 10 in his first two seasons. Obviously, their best record was 8-4, and four, uh, which came in 1987. But you started to see some of the progress under Lou Holtz in 1987. Obviously, Notre Dame started off very well that season. And, uh, and climbed up pretty pretty high in the rankings that year, but they lost their last three games of the year. I believe they were eight and one at one point in time. And yes, they were. Their only loss was at Pittsburgh. They climbed all the way up to number seven after beating number ten Alabama thirty seven to six. Earlier in the season, they'd beaten number nine Michigan, number seventeen Michigan State, and then they lost at Penn State by a point. Got beat at number twelve Miami twenty four to nothing, and they got blown out in the Cotton Bowl thirty five to ten. Then of course the next year, Marcus or uh, Lou Holtz comes out. They go twelve and zero, win the national championship. I talked about how Brian Kelly and Elmer Layden also didn't uh, win championships in year three, but showed growth. And when you look at Brian Kelly, he went sixteen and ten in his first two seasons, and then obviously Notre Dame went twelve and one and lost in the national championship game that next season. And then you look at Terry Brennan, who's one of the 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 first coach that we'll talk about as far as year you know how year three exposes you good or bad. Terry Brennan's career started off pretty well. When you look at, uh, at his tenure, you know, Terry Brennan, let me get the particulars here of, of coach Brennan, coach Brennan replaced Frank Leahy. And that was the second part of coach Leahy's tenure. Obviously Notre Dame won four championships under coach Leahy in the last three seasons. They finished uh, seven, two and one, seven, two and one, nine, oh, and one Notre Dame finished number two. In Coach Late in Coach uh, Leahy's last season, and then Terry Brennan takes over in his first season. Notre Dame goes nine and one and finish number four in that season. Then number year number two, they go eight and two, another top ten finish. But we saw that that was more about kind of building off of what he inherited. In year three, they went two and eight, and they never truly recovered. They went seven and three and six and four the next two seasons. And that began a stretch of, of Notre Dame going without a championship until 1966 when Eric Parsegian was able to win one. And then you look at Bob Davey. 
Bob Davey takes over for Lou Holtz. Notre Dame was a good program. They weren't as good as they were during that prime years of, of Coach Holtz's tenure. But, you know, Bob Davey, Bob Davey did lead Notre Dame to a 9-3 and season in, in, 19, in his second season. Uh, they, Notre Dame went 9-3 and in 1998. You guys remember that season. Notre Dame um, came out that year, beat the defending national champion Michigan, Climbed all the way to number nine in the polls after winning eight straight games, including a game against LSU, 39-36, which we all remember. I believe that was the game Jerry Jackson got hurt. And then they went out on the road, lost to USC on the road, and then lost to Georgia Tech in the Gator Bowl by a touchdown. And that was, I mean, you could argue the height of Bob Davies' tenure. Two years later, they obviously went to the Fiesta Bowl. That was a not a very good football team, if we're all being honest. But in year three, under Bob Davey, Notre Dame went five and seven. And to me, he established who he is, a very inconsistent coach who is going to be able to, to get Notre Dame to a certain level, but is never going to be able to build on that. He, that's, what, that's what Bob Davey was exposed. Ty Willingham replaces Bob Davey. Notre Dame goes 10 and two in his first season. Uh, in year two, they went five and seven. And then in year three, uh, Notre Dame went – six and five before coach Willingham was fired and replaced by Kent bear for the bowl game. Notre Dame lost that bowl game. We have a question about uh, Ty Willingham that I'll get into during the mailbag part about whether he should or shouldn't have been fired. My short answer, Andrew is yes, but there's a lot of reasons for it. And, and if people said at the time, well, you know, every other coach got five years. No, they didn't. There were coaches that only got one, only coaches that only got three. So that was is not an accurate criticism of Notre Dame's decision, and it was the right decision, and we'll, we'll get into that. But what what happened was is Coach Willingham was exposed for who he is as a coach, which is just not cut out for this level. Charlie Weiss comes to Notre Dame, he replaces Ty Willingham, and he goes he goes uh, nine and three in his first season, really good season for Notre Dame. Uh, they go ten and three the next season, but you started to see some of the warts of Notre Dame during that tenure. And then, of course, in 2007, we saw Coach Weiss for who he was as a coach, which is a very good schematic X's and O's guy, but not a guy that knows how to build a team. He inherited a team that was already coached well from a fundamental standpoint, but had very poor leadership and you know, from a football standpoint, and then just very poor X's and O's football team, especially on offense. And then Coach Weiss comes in. He inherits Brady Quinn and Mo Stovall and Jeff Samarja and Raymond McKnight and a lot of those players. Victor Abiyamiri inherits a great roster. Not a great roster, a very good roster. And we saw what he did. But even with all those highly ranked recruiting classes, he couldn't win after that because he didn't know how to build a team up. He could take a team already established and go run with it. But he couldn't build it up. And, of course, by year five, he was exposed. And so we've seen this throughout Notre Dame's tenure of, of since, since Frank Leahy left, that by year three, you start to get a sense of who that coach is. Some won titles, some didn't, but they were successful. And so that's why I say, just historically speaking, you can't ignore this. You can't ignore the coaches that have been very good at Notre Dame started to show that early. The coaches who weren't good at Notre Dame started to show that early in year three was the year that if you look at it, it's very interesting how year three was that exposed gear where you saw those coaches for who they were in year three. And it became clear that the success that had come before clear, as we look back, the success that we had come before was not who that coach was. It was more building off of what they inherited. And it's, it's very fascinating. So then we get to Marcus Freeman 
and he's a coach who inherited a, a, a good roster, but a roster that had some flaws. He's done a lot of things to try to build that roster. I think the portal has certainly helped Notre Dame in, in ways that maybe in past coaches would have struggled to be able to build the roster and rebuild the roster the way that Marcus Freeman did. But when you look at Notre Dame in, in the last two years, we've seen a lot of good and we've seen some things that are not so good. So you enter this year three period under Marcus Freeman and you're just like, well, what is this team going to be? What are we going to learn about Marcus Freeman? And, I, and I'm at the point now, honestly, where I kind of am, am feeling a little bit where I'm trying to think of the way to say this so you don't you all don't take this the wrong way. I kind of feel like it's going to be one or the other. Like, I don't think it's going to be 10 and two or nine and three. I, I could be wrong. It's just my feeling. I feel like if they're they're going to either like 10 and two is probably that number, right? I feel like they're not going to be a 10 and two team. They're either going to be 11 and one or better, or they're going to be worse. And because the flaws that keep the program from being an 11 and 12 win regular season team are then going to kind of bite them a little bit and they go nine and three or worse. And the only way I think 10 and two will be what this team is, is if we look back at the schedule and you say like four or five teams were better than we thought they were going to be. And so, you know, Notre Dame was able to, or I mean, excuse me, are, are worse than they thought we thought they're going to be. And it was a pretty easy schedule and you kind of go 10 and two because the schedule's not very good. You know, Texas A&M's not that good. You know, Louisville's not that good. Florida State's not as good. You know, you, you lose two games, but it's kind of like an unimpressive 10 and two, kind of like 2019. You know, we all watched that season, you know, 10 and two. You're like, that's an ugly 10 and two season. I mean, your best win was over Navy. You got blown out by, you know, Michigan. You, you went on the road and lost to Georgia. You didn't beat anybody good. I, I feel like we're kind of, we're going to kind of, we're going to kind of see a little bit that start to be established to where we're going to say, okay, maybe Marcus Freeman wins a title in year three. Maybe he doesn't. I'll get into why I don't think that's necessarily the standard, but we're going to start to see things this year. They're going to tell us, okay, he's probably not the guy. And then we're going to see things, or, or we're going to see things this year. They're going to say it wasn't this year, but it's coming. It's going to happen because of what Marcus Freeman is building at Notre Dame, and they took that big step this season. And so we're gonna we're gonna dive into that as well, and uh, and talk about what we need to see. And so, what are the things that I need to see this season to make me feel that Marcus Freeman? has taken the necessary jump to say, hey, this is this is a guy that's capable of winning that. Because what, what I don't want Notre Dame to be saddled with again, and this is more big picture, this isn't about Marcus Freeman as much, is I don't want them to be saddled with a, with us in a situation like we saw under Brian Kelly where, you know, you're going 10-2 and two a lot of years towards the end. And, of course, Brian Kelly didn't get to that until year, what, seven Say 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 7. Year eight is when Brian Kelly began his run of 10 and 2 every year. But that's what Marcus Freeman's walking into. And it took Brian Kelly a while to establish that. And and you know, there, there was there were some flaws there that, that got erased after 2016 that made the program more sustainable. And a lot of that had to do with you know weaker schedule and some other aspects of it. But what I don't want to be is saddled with a coach who's just good enough to not get fired, but not good enough to win it. You know, I want to see Notre Dame have a coach that's good enough to win it. Even in the years that you don't win it, you say, hey, they're taking steps to get there. And that's old, big picture 
what I want to see from Marcus Freeman. And I'll get into some specifics here in a minute, but I want us to be sitting here, you know, less than a year from now, kind of in in January and be December, January season's over with whatever Notre Dame's postseason record is. They don't win a championship. Uh, I mean, because of course, if they win a championship, the answer's there, right? But if they don't win a championship, that we're sitting here looking back on this team and saying, you know what? It didn't end the way we wanted to because we're Notre Dame fans. We should always want a title, but we can look back on this season and say, yeah, it didn't get to where we hoped it would, but man, this team took a jump. Man, this team showed me something. Man, this team is on the verge that if they can keep going this direction, they're going in the direction where a championship was right around the corner. And and kind of like what we saw from, honestly, Michigan in the last couple of years. Like, you know, 2021, obviously Michigan wasn't on that level. They got smacked by George in the playoff. Come out in 2022, they're better. Get upset by TCU, didn't end the way they wanted, but they kept building and building and building. And then, of course, 2022 comes and they kick the door down and win a national championship. And, and so you could see the, the growth happening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Under Brian Kelly, it just was kind of like disappointing, disappointing. Hey, look what happened in year three. And then disappointing, disappointing, back to being good again, utter collapse, and then pretty steady after that. You want to start to see this Notre Dame football team get to the point where you say, hey, look, they're ascending. Maybe it's 2024, maybe it's 25, maybe it's 26. But man, what we saw in year three has you excited about what's to come. Because I I think ultimately, as, as a fan, that's where we get to the point to where say, okay, take a record of a team and you look at it and say, you're going to have a feeling about it. We all say, well, it, did, it wasn't a title. So in that regard, it, it didn't meet expectations of, of the standard of Notre Dame. They want a title, but you can then look at it and say, but I really feel good about that record or that record was disappointing. And, and a perfect example is, I've argued this, the nine and three season, regular season of 2017, even with the bad loss to Miami was a far more impressive season than the 11 and one from 2021. Why? It didn't beat anybody in 2021. It was just like an ugly year. You know, they, they beat up a, beat a bunch of teams that were far inferior to them. You know, they had to have comebacks against a mediocre Virginia tech team, a mediocre Toledo team. You know, you couldn't put away a mediocre bad USC team. You couldn't put away a, and just an okay North Carolina team. It just was a disappointing season. The record looked great, but it was a disappointing season. To me, the nine and three season where you lost to Georgia and you lost to, 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 um, to Miami and you lost to Stanford, that was a more impressive season because that year you saw some really good wins. And you look back and say, boy, that 21 team probably loses five, six games if you put them with the schedule they had in 2017. And so you can look at a season and say, hey, that record is what it is. The end result is what it is. But you feel good about the direction of this team. So even though the 17 season ended in a disappointing fashion regular season-wise, they did go out and beat LSU in a bowl game. 
There's some really good players coming back in 2018. You felt like, hey, this team, this team's building something, even though the season didn't end the way we hoped they're building something. Whereas in 2021, it was just like, and they were kind of lucky to be 11 and two because of the, the week schedule they played. And, and same thing like 20 in, in uh, 2015, right? That, that was a team where you just kind of felt like at the end of the year, that's a disappointing team. The record was 10 and two in the regular season. And then you lose the bowl game. 10 and three seems nice, right? But the issue was, but you, who'd you beat? You, you, you lost to every good team you played. So it's not so much the record. It's more so about what is this, what is this team, tr- this program, where's it trending? And ultimately, big picture, that's what we need to see about Mark from Marcus Freeman. So let's get into some specifics as we close this part of the show out and, and talk about what is it, what would it look like to say this is this was a, a year where we saw growth short of a championship. Or because I, I think we would all agree that if Notre Dame gets to the championship game, even the semifinal, and loses a really competitive game, I would assume most of us would look at it and say it didn't end with the ultimate goal of what Notre Dame should be about. But guys, this was a really good season that showed great growth as a program. So when you look at it, it's like obviously those things are obvious. We would all look back and see that as growth, but but more so. What are other things that that need to happen to get to that level or that will show that Marcus Freeman is growing as a head coach? And here's point number one, the hires work out. And one of the most important aspects for a football coach at this level is can you can you make good hires? Can you build a championship staff? I mean, I know we all think he's weird and we hate talking about Michigan, but the facts are the, the facts are the facts, folks. I mean, some of the hires that Jim Harbaugh has made in his last several seasons at the University of Michigan turned out to be absolute home run hires. I mean, Mike McDonald started to get the thing getting turned around. He comes here for a year, then goes to the Ravens. He replaces him with Jesse Minter, and he just takes it to another level. I question the Sharon Moore hire of the offense as offensive line because this guy's never coached offensive line. What kind of hire is this? Turned out to be an absolute home run hire because he saw something in Sharon Moore. And so we've seen over the years that they've he's done a good job of building a staff, something that Nick Saban did for a lot of his tenure was he hired, he made good hires and he could keep those coaches around. And Dan Lanning loses Kenny Dillingham after one year. Kenny Dillingham gets the Arizona State job. He goes out and hires Will Stein from Texas San Antonio, who's even better, does even better than Kenny Dillingham did. And, and so the best coaches make good hires. Now, it's not always the case. Urban Myers had misses. Saban's had some misses. You know, Dabo's had some misses. You know, Kirby's had some misses. But overall, your hires start to have to start showing out. Some of the hires that Marcus Freeman have, have made were, were have been strong hires. Some are solid hires, but to be determined, and some haven't been good hires. This year, Marcus Freeman made two huge on-field hires and a huge off-the-field hire. And they need those hires to pan out because they were important hires. Obviously, Mike Denbrock is the offensive coordinator. That, that move needs to, to pan out. Now, what does that say about Marcus Freeman? Well, that's on Mike Denbrock. You know, he made the hire. He got the guy he wants. That's, you know, it's up to Denbrock to make it work, kind of. But part of Marcus, Mike Denbrock panning out is Marcus Freeman being, being willing to say, hey, this is what I thought we were going to be on offense. That's not good enough. I still believe in not turning the ball over. I still believe in efficiency and all this kind of stuff. I still believe in running the football. That's all good stuff. But 
we have to be willing to be more aggressive from a mentality standpoint going into different games, right? We have to be willing to say, hey, we're going to be more on, on the attack. We're going to be willing to, you know, to be more aggressive, not just against Central Michigan and and Tennessee State, Navy and Pitt and Wake and Stanford, but we're going to be that way against Ohio State. We're going to be that way against Clemson. We're going to be that way against Texas A&M. We're going to be that way against USC. We're going to be that way when they're good. We're going to be that way against Georgia or Bama or whoever we get in the postseason. It's it's not being just let's chuck a deep every play, but but go on the attack. Be willing to be the the aggressor. And far too often the last two years, and this was true under Brian Kelly as well, when they would get into these big moments, you'd see the offense kind of get conservative. Like they were so afraid of making a mistake that they just weren't willing to go out there and do what it took to win the game, right? And so I, I need to see Coach Freeman do that. And if he does that and then gives creates the practice structure, uh, allows Mike Denbrock and the rest of that staff to build sort of the mentality, the culture in the off, on the offensive side of the ball to say, hey, we're always going on the attack. We're always going on the attack. Because going on the attack sometimes, guys, is we're going to run it right down their throat and set up some big play opportunities in the pass game. It doesn't mean you come out and go empty and throw the ball nine out of ten times. That's not being aggressive to me. Being aggressive is we are always looking to be on the attack. We're always looking for our chance to to not only move the chains, but then look hunt for that big play opportunity, right? And, and that's the thing is the best offensive coaches to me, the teams that are winning championships to me, even a team like Michigan that wasn't a super explosive offense, they were always looking for that opportunity to go big in a game. And, and to me, when you look at some of the big moments for Notre Dame, they've been unwilling to do that. And it's not just play calling because we saw against Clemson and Ohio State there were calls that were made where guys were open for potential big plays. But I don't believe the culture was such that the quarterback and other players felt the freedom to be aggressive, to take that chance, to take that shot, where there just wasn't that instilled confidence. I remember talking with a Notre Dame coach, it's not someone on the current staff, about the 2019 game where Notre Dame was – it was the Georgia game. They took the game over. They took the ball over with, I think, f- about two minutes left. They were at the Georgia 48-yard line, and they ended up not getting it done. And I was talking with a Notre Dame coach at the time, uh, a couple weeks after that, and we were talking about the run game and some different things that were going on that that the run game needed to get going and some different things of what they were doing and and he was asking me about, you know, an article I wrote and, you know, why I wrote it. It was a good conversation. It wasn't like a question. It was a, it was a good football conversation. And we got to talk about the Georgia game. And the coach says to me, he looks at me and says, you know, I kind of knew, I had a feeling that going into that drive that we weren't going to score. I said, seriously? Like, how can you say that? Like, what do you mean? He goes, you could just see it in their eyes. Like, they didn't believe. They didn't believe in themselves that they were going to go out there and make that play. They no one was no one was in the huddles like, "Hey, throw me the effing ball. Get me the ball." Ian Book wasn't in the huddle saying this. I mean, it just he said there just was this look of they wanted to win. They were going to try to win, but there wasn't that inner belief that like, "Hey, we got this." I mean, you you hear the stories from the from the teams that win. It's like, "Hey, this guy said this and this guy did that." And you just knew that we were we knew we were going to win. You hear it from Broncos players and you know, the drive. They say, "Hey, look, we knew we were going to score." You know what I mean? Like we we have Elway. And and so there's that belief for whatever reason that we were going to go score and they didn't have it. They again, guys, they took the ball over in Georgia territory 2 minutes left. 
a touchdown wins you the game, and they didn't they didn't believe in themselves. That's a culture that's established, not just as a team, right? That has to start at the top of the team, but there has to be that culture built into the room where there's this, this great confidence in what's being given to you. There's this great confidence in each other. The linemen say, hey, I got to block my butt off because with Riley and the running Jeremiah and Jadarian and whoever else, boy, if I block, they're going to go off. Riley Leonard's got to say to himself, hey, I, I need to make sure that I'm making the right reads, getting the ball out there, because if I get the ball to Chris Mitchell or Jaden Greathouse or Jordan Faison or Bo Collins or Deion Colsey or Cam Wims or, or uh, Mitchell Evans or whoever, that this guy's going to go make a play. And and so they're, they're and, and the receiver, I, I got to go run my route as hard as I can because, man, Riley's going to get me the ball. Or I got to go block my butt off because if I can block this corner, I can get to the safety. Jeremiah's going to house this thing or Jadarin's going to house this thing. There's this absolute confidence in yourself, in the system, and in each other that it doesn't matter who you play. It doesn't matter the circumstance. It doesn't matter how bad you might start the game. When the game's in the line, you're going to go make plays. And you think about the the Alabama-Michigan game and how bad Michigan looked to start that game. I mean, J.J. McCarthy almost throws a pick. They're fumbling punts. They're just – they're not looking good, but it, it didn't phase them. Because they had that belief that, hey, we're going to be fine. We're going to get this thing going. Defense helped them out, you know, kept them in, you know, bam and check. And then the offense gets to the fourth quarter and they, they take the game over. They do what they need to do. Guys make plays. And so to me, Coach Freeman has to allow that to happen, that aggressiveness, that confidence to be, to be built. He's responsible for part of it. And then Mike Denbrock and Joe Rudolph and Dela McCullough and Mike Brown and Gino Gadulli are responsible for building the rest of it. And then, of course, you're going to need some leadership. But that hire, and you include Mike Brown in there, those hires have to pan out. And, and I'll talk more about it here in a few. Number two, you've got to see the culture that Marcus Freeman wants start to step in. I've said this before. I don't really know for sure you know, wh- what the culture of Marcus Freeman wants is because we're, we're two years in. You know, we've seen one year it was like this. The other year it's like this. He's still evolving as a coach. You have a lot of holdovers in the previous regime, coach-wise, player-wise, all this kind of stuff. Year three is when that's got to that's gotta be gone. Year three is when your culture starts to reign supreme. So, you know, what kind of attitude does your team play with? What kind of focus week after week after week does your team play with? You know, what kind of toughness does your team play with? Mental toughness, but also physical toughness. You know, are you going to be the team out there every week that we are the most physical? I don't care who we're playing. And when you watch this 2023 team, there were years where I watched the Ohio State game and I felt like Notre Dame was the more physical team. Ohio State executed better when the game was on the line, but I felt like Notre Dame physically defensive line, I thought, took it to Ohio State. I thought the offensive line at the very least stalemated, but I thought in the second half really started to lean on Ohio State and was opening up run lanes for Audric Estime, which is why we all were frustrated. They took him out and didn't give him the ball again after that one you know, good run on their final drive. And so you look at it and say, boy, is this, the, is this team going to be that team that – but then the point is – I'm sorry, I lost track. The point is the next week they go to Duke and just get their – physically get their butt kicked on the offensive side of the ball. They go to Louisville the next week and get their butt kicked on both sides of the ball physically. That can't happen. You come back the next week and you physically beat up USC, and it was just this roller coaster ride. When Notre Dame is rolling under whoever that coach is, week after week after week after week, they're battling, they're physical, they're getting after it. And it's like what we said of the Lou Holtz tenure. You could maybe beat Notre Dame under Lou Holtz, and teams did. 
but you were going to limp away from that fight. And that's where Notre Dame needs to get back to. And that doesn't have to do with how much percentage do you run? How much percentage do you pass? None of that stuff. Are you a physical football team? That's a culture thing as much as it's anything. That's instilled in players as much as you just inherently have it. Yes, you have to have some level of toughness, but you've got to build that and bring that out of your football team. And I want to see that from them this year. And then overall, just a healthier program. Not health from a physical health standpoint, but just, you know, you're not hearing as much about some of the drama on the team and some of the guys aren't bought in. You're not hearing any of that stuff. It's everybody's bought in. Those are things you look for. And then the next final step is, okay, what does that look like practically in 2024? What does that look like? Here's what we'll see. Number one, and, and I'm going to kind of build, right? So start here and then build to the to the end game. Number one, the offense takes a step forward. It's not so much about points per game or yards per game. It's more so about, obviously, you want to continue scoring points at a high level like Notre Dame this, did this past year. I mean, if Notre Dame repeats their points per game average from this year and repeats their yards per play average from this year, Notre Dame has a chance to be pretty good. But as we learned this past year, it can't be because nine of your, your the 10 teams you played, you score – 49, 58, 56, and a ton of points. And then you score 14 against, you know, Ohio against Ohio State. You only scored 20 against Duke. You only scored 20 against or 21 against Duke. You score 20 against Louisville. You score 23 against Clemson. You know, and then you go score 40 against a, a, a beatdown Oregon State team. You score 56 on Stanford, who sucked. You go score 45 on Wake Forest, who's terrible. You score 58 on a pit team that's awful. You know, like that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about is, yes, you're scoring those points at a high level against those inferior teams, but you're scoring what you're doing, what you need to do to beat Texas A&M, to beat Indiana, or I mean, to Louisville, to beat Florida State, to beat Georgia, to beat Bama, to beat Michigan, to beat Texas, to beat whoever you need, Ohio State, to beat whoever you need to beat. That's what we mean by the offense taking a step forward. Not, not just that the numbers are good, but can they be that 30 plus point per game team? against the best teams in the schedule. And that's one of the encouraging things about Mike Denbrock is I pointed out the last two years, if you look at LSU's points per game against ranked opponents, it's over 30. You know, they scored 30 points in two games against Alabama. They scored 28 this year. Jaden Daniels got knocked out of the game in the second half. And they scored 32 in a win over Bama last year. You know, so, so the offense has been able to do what it needs to do in those big games. If Notre Dame averages 33.6 points per game or anywhere close to that, against ranked opponents, Notre Dame's going to be hard to beat. That That's the reality of it. They only needed 18 to beat Ohio State. They only needed, you know, uh, they, Clemson you needed to get over there. But part of that was because your own struggles offensively. I mean, but you look back to Georgia in 2017, you only needed 21 points. You know, you look at Georgia in 2020, 2019, you only needed 24 points. And so you look at all those aspects of it, and you say the offense has to play better in those big moments. The defense needs to keep rolling and i'll talk about that more when we get into our defensive second segment number three obviously i start winning some of these big games right that's the big thing is how do you play in big games we'll see we will if, if notre dame is where they need to be we need to see notre dame take that next step this season and win some of those games and 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 that's going to be a big key for notre dame is to win those big games well and we don't know what those games are going to be yet i mean we can look at the scars okay a&m's probably gonna be a big game four state louisville maybe usc you know, th- those things are all, okay, we think they are, but who thought Louisville and Duke were going to be two of your biggest games coming in the season? Well, I mean, we talked about Duke being a potential trap game, and, and but but who saw Louisville being a 10-win, you know, ACC title competing team this year? I, I didn't. I thought they'd be solid because I have a, I'm a big Jeff Brom guy, but I didn't think they'd be what they were. 
I thought USC. I mean, who who were like before the year? Hey, Louisville's going and Duke are going to be bigger games in USC when the season when the season's over. When we look back, those are going to be bigger games in USC. I don't know what those games are going to be, but in those moments, their name has to play, play and win. That that's that's the big thing. And the last two is I do want to see an improved record. I I, I don't think you can look at this season and say and, and justify nine and three again. And I don't care what the schedule looks like. You're in year three. You should be better than you were in year two. And, well, you know, this team was better than you thought. You're Notre Dame. You're in year three. You need to be better. So we've talked about this with friends of mine and, and different folks in the message board. Like 10 and 2 is the floor. And it better be an impressive 10 and 2. And then, of course, you have success in the postseason again. You have to see improvement. And I would like to see more than one game improvement. If I'm, if, if I'll be honest, if Notre Dame goes 10 and 2 this year and it's a good 10 and 2, I'll say they took a step, right? They took a step. It was a good step, but it wasn't the step you want to see. They need to be 11 wins or better and then look good in those instances to, to win, to, for me to say, hey, they really took that step. And then the last piece, you need to do some damage in the postseason. If you're 10-2, and two, odds are pretty decent. You're not a playoff team. So whatever game you get into, you got to win and go 11-2. and two. You just, You've just you got to show that growth. But if you get into the postseason, to me, I think they need to win at least one game. They need to win that first round game, and and I say at least one because it's going to depend on where they're ranked. I mean, if they're if they're getting in and they're the eight seed and they, you know, or the nine seed and they go on the road and beat the eight seed, that's a that's a good win. And then you get the number one seed in round two. Okay, you got to be competitive to show growth. But if you're like a five seed or a six seed, I think you kind of got to win two, in my opinion, to to really say, hey, we've taken that big jump. But at least one playoff win to me is a step in the right direction for Notre Dame because of what it meant for the regular season and the postseason how much damage they do in the postseason is going to determine how big of a jump they take but that's going to be the final piece and and you say well what if they go 12 and 0 and lose in the first round okay that would mean that they lost to the 12 seed that's not good enough that, that that's okay maybe your schedule's not as tough as you thought it was but or you won some big games in the regular season but when it was really mattered you couldn't get the job done. If they go 12 and 0, beat the 12 seed and then lose a barn burner to the 4 seed, okay. I mean, that's disappointing, but that's a that's definite progress, right? And so those are the things that I look uh, that I look at and um you start getting really excited about when it comes to what this team could be, but also they need to show it. They need to start showing it. Um and and really get into to Hey, it's no more about what the team should be. It's about what the team is. What I've said before, guys, Notre Dame is a almost program. They're almost good enough to win those games. If Marcus Freeman is going to be that guy, they need to stop being an almost team and start getting that done. And that's going to be the big step. Is it? Is it national title or bust? I'm not there yet with this team. I, I don't know that this team – has the like I believe this team has a roster to 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 make a run if some things go their way. Some guys are better, maybe some teams aren't as good, but I don't know. I don't believe that I can look at this team right now. Maybe that'll change after the spring, but I can't look at this team right now and say, "Yep, they should win it all." They should win it all. And and so I just I'm not there yet. But you need to see progress. You need to see growth. You see, need to see that team take that next step. And if Marcus Freeman can do that in year three, then that gets people excited and it's trending in the right direction. If they don't, then there have to be honest questions about, is he going to be that guy? 
And then that puts way more pressure on the team in 2025. So year three success, we'll find out what the actual level is, but I think it's very clear that when you look at this football team, that one thing is they have to show growth on year three under Marcus Freeman have to show growth. They have to show progress because year three, as I, as I laid out at the beginning of the show, year three is that time where you start to see this is about you, right? This is about you. This is about what you've done. There's no more blaming Brian Kelly for where this team is in 2024. There's no more blaming the step. The administration won't pay coaches that, that, that has not been an issue so far this off season. Okay. So far this off season, but they went out and did what they needed to do to get Mike Denbrock. They did what they needed to do to get Lauren Landau Guys, Mike Brown at Wisconsin was a borderline top 10 highest paid receivers coach. He was also the assistant head coach. He came to Notre Dame just to coach receivers. I promise you that came with a pay raise. Promise you that. And so uh, to me, that's where we've got to see growth. If if we see those things happen, we see the, the improvement being made, then we'll know this team has a chance to get somewhere. So that's going to do it for this part of the show, guys. I'm going to take just a little 10-second break, and we're going to dive into topic number two. But before we do that, hit that like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notification bell, share this podcast. We would greatly appreciate a five-star review. And if you have not done so, sign up for the message boards at boardsartersbreakdown.com. There's all this chatter in the, about a topic in the, in, the, um, in the chat. I'm not addressing those rumors in this chat. If you want to find out, go to the message board, okay? So we're not going to discuss that. So People that are bringing that up, we're not we're not diving into that, okay? We're not addressing that on this show. We don't do rumors on this show. We have addressed it. It's addressed in the message board, which is one of a million reasons why you need to be a member at boards at ourspreakdown.com. 